Hey everyone, this is Augustus Cho. Welcome to part two of our previous episode. You're listening to Augustus Cho's Fry It Up podcast on the Nana Music Network. The reason I brought up Berkey's College of Music is that uh, I wanted you to explain to the listeners the primary differences between, say, conservatory like Juilliard's versus Berkeley, so that there's a reason why you chose uh, particularly to go to Berkeley. Sure, schools like um, Juilliard, New England, New England Conservatory, Oberlin, Eastman School of Music, uh, prepare students to uh, um, find uh, work in symphony orchestras, in chamber groups, uh, quartets, opera, classical, in essence, um, being great instrumentalists. Uh, while jazz... Um, schools like Berkeley prepared you for both either a field in jazz or a career in jazz or in writing and production, producing, um, and, uh, and, 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 and pop, if you will. Um, At that time, a lot of great, a gra- a lot of great um, uh, alumni have gone on. Um, after graduating or even done only a few years at Berkeley, not even graduating and done extremely well in the world of popular music and popular, the umbrella would also have jazz in there, R&B, rock, etc. So you think that Berkeley was a better fit for you in terms of where you wanted to go and also kind of a, a style that you wanted to uh, work in? Looking back, yes. And, uh, and thank God my, my high school music teacher um, thought uh, that Berkeley would be a better fit for me. And, so, and it did. Yeah. Because Berkeley focused more on, you know, they embraced more of a popular music discipline like jazz and music production, that sort of thing. While classical conservatories like Juilliard's are just heavy, heavy into classical things. Exactly. So, yes. Not that you don't do it because you are obviously capable of doing it. All right, that's good. So I wanted people to understand why you chose one over the other. Sure. Now, your talent was good enough that by 1989 that you were a recipient of a Abe Ullman Scholarship, right? So what was that about? So at that time, the Songwriters Hall of Fame here based in New York City uh, was honoring um, young songwriters who were promising had a future in songwriting, and it was the various uh, performing rights organizations plus the Songwriters Guild of America that would select a, um, a particular writer to be honored and would be given a scholarship. I think back then, I think it was like a thousand bucks that we got. And um, the year that I won, um, Mary Wilson, was the, uh, from the Supremes, yeah, uh, as well as uh, um, uh, a couple of songwriters from the Motown uh, era were were being honored, and uh, it was uh, it was fantastic. I had just um, 
come to New York. I graduated in 86. I was already in New York three years. And to have gotten that, uh, that scholarship, that award, uh, uh, definitely gave me a boost of confidence. And um, I'm forever grateful of that. Uh, I, uh, yeah. The piece that you composed, was it something that you had in the back of your mind for years? Or was it something that kind of came to you more recently as you were writing it? Well, remember I said that I, I was writing at age 12, 13, mm-hmm. 14, of course, the Beatles and listening to all their songs. Um, you know, when you're, when you're learning guitar, the songs that you gravitate to are, are the songs like written by the Beatles, if you will. And, um, and, and, and as you're reading the credits, because I was... I wanted to find out who wrote the song and who produced it and where it was recorded. I, I love having that kind of information. Um, I, uh, um, I learned that the Paul McCartney and John Lennon wrote many of the songs and, um, and I wanted to write as well. And I developed it over time, over time. I think the John Lennon and Paul McCartney said before they wrote the hits, they wrote the bad songs, the dogs, they called them. <laughs> I'm and sure that's so, true for everybody. <laughs> and so I had, well, a lot of people would not realize that had, because they wrote so many hit songs in a short amount of time. They, people thought they came out of their mom's womb. McCartney came from a musical family. His father played music. His grandfather played music. Um, and um, so he was surrounded constantly by music, singing during the holiday seasons and, and so on and so forth. That's, that's beautiful. That's rich to be able to grow up in that environment. I didn't. Right, uh, right. <laughs> I had a different environment. Uh, that I, so I had to like immerse myself and, and just keep at it. The amount of hours that musicians spend learning an instrument, practicing, um, honing their skills is just countless countless hours and if you don't put that time and effort into it it ain't gonna happen uh, otherwise and not to mention all the cost of lessons to begin of course, with absolutely but i think that's in almost any endeavor where a, a student wants to pursue something besides academics you know what about the gymnast what about the the one that goes on to sports all the practices so I think uh, having a focus or something that you yearn for the drive at a early age is really, really important. Your parents could, could give you whatever, but if you don't have the drive, you know, you could probably practice a little bit and then you give it up. How many stories we've heard of that? Right. Where somebody shows an interest, but they don't have the drive. Right. Or the motive. Yeah. It doesn't the go motivation, anywhere. of course. Yeah. Certainly. Do you remember the song that you want? What it was entitled? Actually, it wasn't because of one song. It was because of my the body of my work at that time. Um, but after the ceremony, I was taken out for lunch. And they said, Mike, you know, now I hope that you're inspired to write the, the most simplest of melodies that's even a fifth grader can sing back to you. So that was a challenge. 
And lo and behold, it's so funny that you asked me this question and that you've done your homework, uh, Augustus, that the song that I am getting ready to release on July 1st, July 1st of this year, is a remix of a song that I wrote after that inspirational talk. And it's called Temptation Down in Rio. I wrote the music, Keith Edwards, um, the son of a award-winning, Tony award-winning Broadway composer, wrote the lyrics. And we've had so many versions over the years, English, Italian, so many different vibes. And now we're doing a remix. And I'm singing it in the Calabrian language. And it's called Ryu. And I've, uh, I've elevated it to a level where the song is about actually Mother Earth and the love affair that we have with Mother Earth or that many have and how the Amazon and the Amazon River and the Amazon Basin, if the planet is Mother Earth, then that part of the world of Brazil is the world's lungs. It's the heart. Without the Amazon, we would not have, you know, a healthy world. And God forbid that that is deforested. It's We are heading towards, truly towards human extinction, for sure. So it's my way of bringing attention to the Amazon. And I'm also trying to bring attention to my native language, the Calabrian language, through pop music that has influences in Brazil, African, Andalusian, Flamenco. I bring all those musical influences into this song. And uh, depending on when the show uh, airs, uh, I will have to let uh, Ruben know about it to include it into this. Oh, absolutely. Um, in 94, uh, you also wrote a song called Going Crazy, which Jose Feliciano uh, picked up and performed. How did that happen? So, um, you know, you know what they say? It's not what you know, who you know. I disagree. (laughs) It's both. Because you can know somebody, but if you can't, you know, deliver, they might use you once and that's it. Right. So I had the opportunity to work with Jose Feliciano and produce uh, and write for him. And one of the songs was Going Crazy. Uh, Jose, this is the early 90s, and uh, Jose uh, was in between record deals, and um, with his manager, the late Peter Zafina, we, um, we thought of, uh, of, of, uh, of a story where we would release a dance song, and at that time, the Latin community was so strong in the dance music world. And Jose, one of the first bilingual artists singing in both English and Spanish. It's over. Fantastic, soulful guitar player. Um, he turned, you know, a cover song of, of The Doors, Light My Fire, made it his own. He was the first one to have controversy with uh, the national anthem, playing an incredible solo uh, during that time, and now everybody is doing those things. So Jose was 
was beyond his years. And it was a great opportunity just watching this pro and how he worked the, 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 in the studio and his soulful voice, always, always awe-inspiring. Saw him perform many times and we had great success. We used his initials, JF, because um, we were trying to, you know, surprise the, 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 the dance music world. Um, but as and, soon and as you hear his voice, we know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. He's got that unique tone, so we know. <laughs> certainly does. He certainly does. And, uh, and uh, it ended up charting on Billboard. And uh, it easily um, helped him leverage uh, his success with that to get another record deal. At this time, were you performing at all? Or were you just uh, in the background? At this time, I, even though I, you know, finished college, won an award. I was doing a lot of jingles, singing on commercials, doing session work, producing um, songs for other uh, songwriters. At, at, at that time, you know, it, it, you're, you're learning uh, where you are in the music world, but you still have to derive an income to live in one of the most expensive cities of the world. So you're, you're using all your your, your craft skills to, to, to create revenue stream to, to be able to support yourself. So, um, yeah. So if it was not singing, it was performing. If not performing, it was producing. If not producing, it was arranging, uh, contracting, all of that. Uh, it adds up. Oh, I, 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 was, I was blessed. I tell this story privately. I think I'll, 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 I'll honor you with letting you know that when I got my residency to live here in the, in the U.S., uh, applying for my green card, um, I had the opportunity to, to take a look at an application uh, by a good friend of mine, uh, awesome theater director, Melanie Joseph. And uh, she shared with me her application. And inside the application, she was sponsored by the great composer, Leonard Bernstein. And inside the application, because he was sponsoring her, was his tax return. Of course, I'm not going to share his tax return or any numbers with anyone. It's private. But his Schedule C was like three pages long. Wow. And it listed all the various revenue streams that he was getting. X amount of money as the conductor of the Philharmonic. X amount of money from his uh, publishing royalties, uh, from his writing royalties, from uh, his books. I mean, Recording. Went on. Yeah. It, it, I learned at a very young age that, for, and he lived at the Dakota, the penthouse of the Dakota. And the Dakota, if you know, that's where John Lennon lived and, and Yoko Ono still lives. Roberta Flack lives there. Many incredible, um, successful people live in the Dakota. Extremely expensive. You have to have revenue to be able to do that. And I learned that it's not one hit single. It's not one song. It's not one performance. It's many of those things deriving revenue streams that allows one to have that kind of a successful career and to be able to afford the lifestyle that you desire. Right. Before we close out, Jose Feliciano asked back up, uh, we know how he is as a performer. 
we know his talent and his uh, vocal as well as his instrumentation. What kind of a person is he? From my experience, yeah. very humble, very caring, uh, engaged, family man. His children are so talented. So talented. So they got Jose's DNA in <laughs> for, for music. Good to know. And, um, <laughs> and I learned a lot from his career. The fact that he wrote Feliz Navidad. That one Christmas song just celebrated its 50th anniversary last year. You beat me to the punch, but let me tell you, unless I hear Feliz Navidad on radio, it's not Christmas for me. But there the first go. time, first time I hear Feliz Navidad play on the radio, at that point, my Christmas uh, spirit begins. So there you go. And I remember that song came out in the early 70s and it was like, wow. You know, I was probably junior high school. Yeah, I was, you know, just like, wow. It was so different from Silent Night. You know what I mean? We just came out, blew the doors open, and it still has that impact for me today. So when I hear that song, Christmas time. And, 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 and from that one song that he wrote, Christmas song, that's classic now, he was very, very busy doing Christmas concerts, tours and performances from the month of November all the way until the Epiphany, the first Sunday in, in January. Busy, busy, busy. No matter if it was a solo thing or playing with a symphony orchestra or with his band. And that stayed with me, Augustus. That stayed with me. Many years later, I created my own CD of classic Christmas songs, but done in my vibe. Yes. I wanted to put my own fingerprint on these classic songs. And of course, a few originals uh, in there. And, um, and I modeled it to be busy during the Christmas season, just like Jose. I was paying homage to Jose when I created my Christmas CD. We know. It's now more than 10 years old. It's called Extra Vergine. And, and the vibe and the concept of that is that it takes you back, if you're a believer, um, to the Middle East, to Bethlehem, the, the timbres, the nuances, the rhythms, the sounds of that region of the world. And, uh, um, and I do six to eight Christmas concerts uh, a year, except for the last couple of years. And I love it. I love it that I'm able to give back. Uh, we do fundraiser Christmas concerts um, where we give back to the community and uh, everybody lives and makes it happen. Of course. Now, we know, you, our generation knows, but uh, I guess the newer generation may not know, but the Jose Feliciano is, uh, is actually blind. And he happens to perform, yeah. just like Stevie Wonder, Ray yeah. Charles, Andrea yeah. Bocelli, yeah. Diane Shore. Yeah. I mean, the list goes on. What they, what they lose with one sense, they make up with another sense. Yeah. Yeah. The ears that they have is, is, uh, is, um, <laughs> is a gift from God. There's no question about it. 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I especially appreciate uh, the people that you mentioned because they are physically, uh, you know, they're blind, so they can't see it, yet, and yet they play piano, you know, play guitar, you know. So like Ronnie Millsap, I love his music uh, yeah. when he plays those, and it's just amazing, amazing people. All right, that's great. Let's uh, close out that chapter. And we will be right back after this important message. And we're back. Let's talk about the uh, your background as an Italian and, and the opera. Obviously, my name is Augustus because I really appreciate the Greco-Roman era of human history from 33 BC to 30 AD, say. So when we talk about Italian, we're talking Roman Empire, beautiful architecture, and of course, opera, right? Well, I think uh, <laughs> a thousand plus years. Uh, it doesn't matter. Between still. the Roman Empire, the fall <laughs> of the Roman Empire, and opera, I think uh, there's, I think there's uh, quite a few hundred, if not a thousand years. Hey, who's counting? But still, <laughs> who's counting? <laughs> Except you. So anyway, you are, you are uh, categorized in terms of the genres of performance. You, you actually are categorized operatic, pop, and classical performer. Classical crossover. It's yeah. Yeah. Yes. Now, uh, personally, well, that, when it comes- that's one genre that mm-hmm. I sing is classical crossover. But I started off in pop, singing rock. And of course, because of my studies in Bel Canto, I had uh, the voice to be able to sing classic Italian, classic Neapolitan songs. Uh, then that style of music, that style of singing, was not cool for a long period of time until Andrea Bocelli uh, had great success in the mid-90s with Conte Partiro, uh, which was performed so angelically by this great uh, tenor, Andrea Bocelli, but it sounded like a song written a hundred plus years ago by someone like a Puccini mm-hmm. or a Verdi. It had that quality. Yeah. And of course, you know, he killed it. He killed it. And it just, it, when it came out in the, in the mid nineties, it just, it played into people's imagination of the Italy of one time, the beauty of the country the, the the culture, the heritage, the food, the fashion, the architecture. It just played so much into that imagination. And that's why it became the world smash hit that it has become. And so many singers have a career because of the success that Andrea Bocelli had with that song, me included. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I prefer Baroque period of opera. With okay. Mozart and Rossini, what do you think? What do you what do you, what, you have a preference? Because we're talking opera, yes, right? Yes, yes, I do have a preference. My preference is light opera, light. Carmen, if you get introduced to opera and it's a heavy Wagner 
opera, like the ring that lasts for 16 hours and you don't have the attention span or the focus, that's it. Forget about having opera on your proverbial menu of music to listen to. Uh, to me, it's got to be light, playful, enjoyful. When I hear, we all got introduced to opera through cartoons, Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Absolutely. There was See? this uh, meme on, on social media recently, and it says, how do most people get introduced to, to uh, opera and the classical music? And it had a graph, and it said... Um, uh, radio, 8%. Uh, going to a, an opera, 2%. Um, whatever else it was, uh, listening to it at, uh, at a party, 10%. And then cartoons. Cartoons was like something like 60%, 70%. That's funny. So we, we owe that to the Barbera Brothers and Looney Tunes and Disney for learning about classical music and uh, and opera. That's funny. I mean, when I was younger, I used to hear opera on the radio because they used to broadcast that, you know, from the Met, something like that. They call the program from the Met or live from the Met. They would have these opera singers. Now, here's a question for you because you are more familiar with the subject matter than I am, especially as a singer. Are great opera singers born or made? They are born, that is God's gift to them. And what they do with that, train, study, go to a conservatory, develop is their gift back to God, their gift to the world. So, so you're given the talent inherently, and then you got to build on it. So without it, then it's not going to happen. No. Okay. Because my father. That's my opinion. <laughs> Perhaps uh, a, a, an inspiring opera singer uh, might disagree with me. And, uh, but my opinion is that you have to have a natural talent, but the natural talent is not enough. You got to develop it. Specifically for opera, absolutely. Because there are people with natural set of pipes. My college roommate was one of these guys. He had this great, you know, pipe set of pipes. He would be across the field at the football field, sitting on the other side of the field, and I'm on this side, and I could hear him yelling, calling my name across the field, you know. And my father, you know, he never had a formal training, but he had a great set of pipes. And he used to sing these classic opera arias back in Korea and back in the 50s. And of course, you know, he never had any training. But I've always wondered for the rest of my life, had he had the opportunity instead of the Korean War breaking up the country and et cetera, that sort of thing, what he could have done with it. Because even when he was in the 80s, he was still singing Arias. You know? So I always wonder, are you born with it? Or can you develop it? You know? It's both. <laughs> if, I mean, look at it this way here. A ballerina. Mm -hmm. You know, there has to be a certain physique mm -hmm. to a ballerina mm -hmm. for them to continue on. The same thing with this instrument. Yeah. It's got to have a certain natural talent to it.
but it needs to be developed to sing opera. Mm-hmm. Then to actually make a living, make a career doing that. And at the top of your field, that's really hard work, of course, luck, right schools, opportunities that come and being determined. I was just at the, at the Met a few weeks ago. Um, Lucia de Lamamor. And uh, it, it's a new production taking place in a small American town in the Rust Belt. That's the new production. Obviously, when it was written 200 plus years ago, it was uh, taking place in, in Scotland. Um, it was fascinating. It was fantastic. I enjoyed it very, very much. And the technology that they have now between what you could read, the lines, the translation right there on the, the back of the chair that you're sitting on, above the screen, above the stage, video. There's a cameraman following for intimate shots. It was quite fascinating. There's a lot of perspectives. Wow. Sometimes it, it took me away uh, from, from the storyline because my eyes were going everywhere. Um, my personal preference. But uh, it was nice. It was, it was good to be in a public performance again after two years. Yes, yes, I can understand that. What makes a great superior opera singer? Ah, a great superior opera singer. Uh, that's a hard one because how many can we count on one hand? Not too many. And um, I, I would say just, you know, the, the God-given talent that they, that they were given and then what they did to train to just make it outstanding. And of course, their, their personality to be able to work together with others where other people wanted to work with them. And their, 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 their star shined brightly. So, so what do you like people like Beverly Sills? Maria Callas, Maria Callas, uh, Mario Lanza, and, and Caruso have in common that separates them from the pack of their generation. Their voice, their vibration, their timbre, their tone connects with people. People are able to feel it more than others. That's what I think. They okay. just, they're so in tune with their voice, their instrument, that they're able to communicate at a higher level than most. And when I mean higher level, that they're able to just emote and people, it just resonates with a greater group of people, a is broader it, group of people. Is that what Luciano had? Of course. Yes. And Jose Carrera. He was known as the king of the high seas. He had the he had the the the, the pipes to be able to sing consistently. Those those uh, operatic arias that required and very few can do that. You know what's the, what separates the great <laughs> athletes? It's the same thing. It's it's a muscle that you're. God-given muscle, and then you develop it. You train it. Yes. I mean, when Luciano was at his peak, oh, my goodness. That was just a thing of beauty. 
to hear his, yeah. uh, his, his performances. And I, I also like Jose Carrera's tonal qualities too. He's got a nice tonal quality. And Domingo as well too. And then you speak to, you have 10 opera buffs in a room. You'll have 10 different opinions. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. That, that's, I'm just saying opera buffs. I'm purist, but mm-hmm. any field. 10 people, 10 different opinions. Everyone has their opinion, but there's going to be a common, commonality amongst the opinions. And the singers that, that were just mentioned rose to the top because their tone, their vibration, their timbre, their ableness to work with others lifted them to a high, high level. When you think about the modern performers like Renee Fleming, uh, Joyce D. Donato, Cecilia Bartoli, some of these, uh, uh, Barbara Bonney. They stand, they stand on the shoulders of those that came before. And they're carving out their path for greatness as well. Um, we all stand on the shoulders of the generations that came before us. And um, few are selected to, to really reach... Uh, you know, the top, top, top of their field. Yeah, it's kind of funny because you never know where the, where the voice is going to come from. Like, for example, Joyce D. Donato. I mean, she actually came from the middle of Kansas. Who would have thought that, you know, somebody from the middle of Kansas, Prairie, Prairie Village, Kansas, would end up with such a uh, elegant, uh, you know, tonal mezzo voice. And to that I say, and so what? Kansas is Kansas. You know, I, if you look at all these biographies, where people came from, successful people in, in all fields and walks of life, not everybody came from royalty and, and well-to-do. You mean they don't come? And, you, you, and you cultural mean, and cultural centers of the world. You mean they don't all come from Roma? No, absolutely not. <laughs> That's my point. It's just like, damn, where do they, where, you know, where do these people come with these set of voices and it's definitely international because a lot of Korean uh, sopranos and, you know, performers, which are quite amazing. So Filipinos. Yeah. I heard so many Filipino singers lately that are just blowing me away and my Filipino friends. And I'm saying to them, I said, uh, it must be something in your water or your food or whatever it is. Karaoke, man. Karaoke. Ever since they're uh, six months old, give them a mic. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I listen, man. Yeah, they're phenomenal. Yes, they are. Give me a quick thought on Sarah Brightman, because here's my question: Is she an opera singer crossing over to pop, or is she a pop singer who's capable of singing such a great soprano? Well, oh, she was a Broadway star first. Okay, and um, um, her her very, very distinctive voice and her sensibility uh, and, and, and business mind, she was able to create or um, approach Andrea Bocelli to do this duet. Prior to that, she was obviously married to the great uh, Broadway composer, um, 
His mind escapes me right now, but I know he's written so many. Yeah, he wrote Cats and all those. Exactly. Yeah, Fans of the Opera. Yeah, I I can't remember his name either. But I'm sure it's going to come up, and somebody's going to tell me, Mike, how can you forget him? (laughs) Anyways, they were married, and so that was her entree into the music world and Broadway. And she approached uh, Drebocelli and said, "You know, I want to do a duet with you on uh, on Conte Partiro. Time to say goodbye." And she's the she's she's forever known as the first lady, the first diva of classical crossover. If 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 Andrea Bocelli is the uh, the first gentleman or the first diva of classical crossover, then she would be considered the first lady, the first. uh, Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, she has she has that uh, angelic. Yet crystal clear tone, and when she has yeah. those high uh, notes, it just almost it just gives you goosebumps. You know, it's such it, a beautiful quality. It is, and unfortunately, I'm going to say something that's not so nice. But a lot of opera purists, opera buffs that just want to listen to opera, um, poo-poo both Andrea Bocelli and um, Sarah Brightman. I'm not that harsh, man. <laughs> Pardon me. I'm not that harsh. I appreciate what they do. Yes, but a lot of people don't realize that a lot of opera houses around the world have gotten a lift, a lift in, 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 in attendance, in interest, in funding because of the success of classical crossover singers, vocalists, artists such as Andrea Bocelli and Sarah Brightman, which Pure opera buffs would not call them, nor I, opera singers. I can understand where you're coming from, in terms of where they're coming from. Uh, that's 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 pretty. That's that's t- that's tough. But for average folks like me, you know, that's it's pretty close enough. Opera. That's why I said opera purists. Yeah. Opera buffs, people who just love that genre. Yeah. Which is only like less than two percent of the world. Yeah, I, I would say. Yeah, I would say because most of uh, us are more commercialized, and you know, kind of. Yes. Free, yeah, yeah. And 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 just like uh, you know, classic jazz, it, it, it's something that's slowly, slowly acquired to appreciate classical music. This is the end of part two. We thank you for listening and invite you to tune in the next time for part three. Meanwhile, join our growing family by subscribing to our podcast.